Could you grab Bibles again? And we're on page 61, Exodus 20. Exodus 20. Can I add my welcome to Andrew's? I'm also Andrew. And we're going to be looking at this passage together in a bit of detail, especially the fourth commandment from it. But we're going to read all of them, all the ten. And uh, if you want to do finger movements to help jog your memories, that I'll be fine with that. Uh, we're going to do what we've done in a, a couple of Sundays already, where I do verses 1 to 2, and then we all read 3 to 17. And the hope is that it will help uh, embed this in, so that by 10 weeks we'll have got it pat. So page 61, Exodus 20, I will start from verse 1, and then you join in at verse 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Do look up. Um, so do keep that open. And these sheets as well have got a few notes inside um, that will help you as we look at this topic, the fourth commandment, Sabbath rest. Um, and somebody in this room might know uh, where this is. And don't just say Alban Road, but can anyone tell me roughly where in London it is? Friendly Street, Deptford. So if you are a local to this area, um, you may pass this every day. And from now on, when you pass it, it will be a reminder to you of God's rest. You can rest. That's what we're going to be thinking of, this whole topic of the rest that God offers. And let me uh, begin with a quote. It's from Judith Shulevitz. She's a Jewish woman who's an op-ed writer for the New York Times. And it's on this topic of Sabbath rest. She says this. There is ample evidence that our relationship to work is out of whack. Ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. We can't help admiring workaholics. 
Let me argue instead on behalf of an institution that has kept workaholism in reasonable check for thousands of years, the Sabbath. Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. The inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was a much more complicated undertaking. You cannot downshift casually and easily. This is why the Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths were so exactingly intentional. The rules did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of will, one that has to be bolstered by habit as well as by social sanction. So I begin with that um, just to plant this uh, commandment in our present day. So we all know that workaholism is a big issue in London, and uh, this um, commandment speaks straight into that problem. Um, it's, it's given to us as a gift, the fourth commandment. Like all of God's commands, therefore, are flourishing um, to help humanity. Um, and the first thing we're going to do as we consider this command today is we're going to step back and we're going to think about what the Sabbath was always really about. Um, that's going to in- involve quite a bit of um, chasing around the Bible. We're going to basically do a Bible overview on the topic of rest in order to understand the commandments. And once we've done that, um, we're going to land on the practicalities of what this will mean for us today. But we need the first three quarters before we do the final quarter. Um, And the first truth I would love for us to get in place on this is that we are created for rest. So the reason given in our passage when we read Exodus 20 uh, for why we're to keep, uh, the, the Israelites were to keep the Sabbath was, this is chapter 20 verse 11, for in six days The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And that was a reference in Exodus 20 back to the beginning of the Bible, back to Genesis 2, which we actually had read just then in our congregational reading. Um, And that describes how God created the world in six days. And the first thing he did after creating is he took the seventh day as a day of rest. And then he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So the point of the Sabbath, when we get to the Ten Commandments, we're told, is to point us back to the rest which God enjoyed at the end of his creation week. I wonder if you have ever thought about um, why time is divided into weeks. I know you all do it, because I see you here every seventh cycle, and you're, unless you're here every day, and this is just coincidence, um, we, we tend to do this kind of seven-day cycle. And um, it's a bit strange if you start to think about it. It's obvious why days exist. That's how long it takes the earth to rotate on its axis. It's obvious why months exist. That's how long it takes the moon to revolve around the earth. It's obvious why years exist. That's how long it takes for the earth to revolve around the sun. Why do weeks exist? Think about it. They do not correspond to anything in nature. And the only answer to this question is, the week exists because of Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, and for no other reason. In fact, I looked this up in Encyclopedia Britannica, and it says that the principle of the week goes back to time immemorial in almost all eastern countries, and there's no explanation for it other than 
what Moses wrote in the Bible. So if you've been following a seven t- uh, pattern as I have, it's because of Genesis 2. It's because God decided, I'm going to create in six days and I'm going to rest on the seventh. And there's no other reason that we do it. And although it's not explicitly a command in Genesis 2, um, many have shown that it is an implied command. So God immediately sets that day apart as holy, with the assumption, therefore, that, other hu- that humans will then observe it as a holy day. And after all, um, if you know those passages, uh, Genesis 1 is all about uh, God's creation and how human beings are made to image God. And it's one of the first things we discover about the Creator is that he follows this six plus one rhythm. Why else did God make the world in a six plus one rhythm and then record it for us if it wasn't for humanity to copy? It also explains why as well when the Lord tells the Israelites, this is in Exodus 16 before the Ten Commandments are given, when he tells them to collect double manna the day before the Sabbath so they um, don't have to collect any on the Saturday, on the Sabbath, the Israelites already know exactly what God is talking about, even before Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. And that's because, one assumes, they've been, uh, this is imprinted um, across uh, humanity. We know it's a seven-day cycle. It explains why Jesus says in the New Testament, the Sabbath is made for man, for humankind, not just for Israel. It's because this uh, command is for all humanity. So for all these reasons, um, I take it that the seven days is a creational ordinance. Human beings were created to follow this six plus one rhythm. Um, Interestingly, um, everything's a bit um, funny, the the colours, so it's interesting for me to see what's going on, but you can still read it, hopefully. Um, Apparently, um, in the 18th century, at the time of the French Revolution, um, I looked some of this up this week to get the details on it, but um, the French government uh, instituted a 10-day week. Um, So they decided they'd have 36, I think you call them decades, in a year, then five holidays to make it up to 365 days. And they did it specifically to remove any Christian influence from their calendar. And they restarted their calendar at year one, as revolutions love to do, and that was the year of the revolution. And this new system in France lasted for a little bit over a decade until Napoleon came in and scrapped it. It just didn't work, and the people hated it. Uh, the people, the laborers, said, we need one in seven, not one in ten. We're not, it, this doesn't work anymore. But this verse in Genesis 2 is doing more than saying human beings work best if we have a, a seven-day rhythm. It's also telling us something profound about why it is human beings are created. It also tells us something about where all of history is heading. Um, the Roman day, which is what we follow in our culture at the moment, uh, runs from midnight to midnight. So if you think about it, our day begins and it ends in darkness. Um, but the biblical day, which is introduced in Genesis 1, do you remember, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, that day runs from sunset to sunset. It begins with night and it ends with day. And that's deliberate. It's because that's the biblical shape of all of history. Um, uh, It's it's a a worldview of hope, things things getting better. Unlike materialism, 
um, which proclaims that history will end in the same darkness and nothingness from which it came. Um, And you can choose your theory when the sun burns out or whatever it is that will extinguish life from the earth will end in darkness and there'll be no hope. The Bible proclaims a much better story. The Bible proclaims a story that begins in darkness and ends in light, a story that ends in hope. Uh, We actually looked at this, if you were with us, when we were doing Romans 13. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. History is heading somewhere. It's heading from darkness to light. And in a similar way, it's not just the shape of days, but it's also the shape of weeks, which underlines this same point in the Bible. In the creation week, God began with work, six days of work, and he ends with rest, glorious rest. And God's rest is that moment when he celebrates his great victory. Initially, there was formlessness, there was emptiness, and through those six days, God conquered it, and he transformed it into order and into abundant life. And at the end of the week, there's that wonderful moment, and God steps back, and with a big gasp of excitement, he looks at everything, and he feels total satisfaction. And he just sits and he finally savours the beauty and and the completeness of everything he's made. That is God's rest. And that rest is something which God enjoys and which he then invites humanity one day to enjoy with him eternally. That state of satisfaction, that state of celebration with which he ended the creation week. Um, It's what's described, um, for example, at the end of the Bible in... um, Sorry, this is the, the day ending in a beautiful, uh, the day beginning with dark and ending in light. But um, the, the end of the Bible has this verse, Revelation 14, 13, that says, Blessed are those who died in the Lord, that they may rest from their labors. This is the great hope for the Christian, at last sharing in God's rest. This is what we look forward to. And that first reading we had, Hebrews 4, uh, it explains how this rest which is called God's rest, and and we learn in that chapter it's the same rest that he introduced in Genesis chapter 2. This is the glorious eternal future which God has prepared and which he offers to humanity. Come and join me in my rest, God says. And this is the first truth that you and I need to get in place in order to grasp the Bible's teaching on the Sabbath. We need to see that we are those who are created for rest I don't just mean we're created for a snooze. I mean that we're created for eternal rest. That's what it's for, what we're for. And the second um, plank to get in place, number two on your sheets or on the screens, is that we've become enslaved and we need liberation. We need a rescue. Now, interestingly, um, this prospect of enjoying God's rest as the great goal of all history, this prospect was established, and I take it held out to the first humans, before sin entered the world. Do you notice that's Genesis 2 before you hit Genesis 3? And I assume that had Adam obeyed God, this was the future which Adam would have enjoyed with God, this state of final satisfaction and celebration with God. But as you know, if you know the Bible at all, Uh, This is not how it turned out. And we discover humanity rebelled against our creator. We forfeited God's rest. 
And the whole of the rest of the Bible really involves God's plan to get things back on track, to save creation, to save humanity for that glorious eternal rest. And amongst the many ways, uh, the many things which went wrong when humanity rebelled was that um, creation itself got cursed. Do you remember the thorns and the thistles and work became arduous toil? Um, We were told that, you know, with sweat you will eat. And humanity, having submitted to the voice of the serpent rather than to God's voice, we became enslaved to various powers, internal powers like the sin within us and external powers like spiritual and societal oppression. And so rest, this wonderful idea, this this, um, reality which God holds out for us, this future rest, uh, we discover is actually a long way away. Did you notice, um, or did you know rather, that the Ten Commandments come up twice in the Bible? Uh, Each week we've been looking at Exodus 20, but we could have been looking at somewhere else, because they crop up again in Deuteronomy 5. So the first time is when they're given from Mount Sinai, and then they're given again 40 years later as Moses is on the edge of the Promised Land, and he's just reminding them of what they received but they're not quite the same, not, not radically different. You don't have to learn 20 or something like that. If you learn 10, you're fine. But there's a little bit of difference in wording on this fourth commandment. So the reason given for keeping the fourth commandment, if you read it in Exodus 20, is this. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. That's the one we've seen already, the purpose of The Sabbath in Exodus 20 is to remind the people of God's creation rest and connected to that, the great hope that God holds out at the end of history. But the reason given for keeping the Sabbath when you get to Deuteronomy 5 is slightly different. This time, they're to take one day out a week to remind them, not of creation this time, but of redemption. Let me read it, Deuteronomy 5.15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So this time, the reason they're given for keeping the Sabbath is that they are to remember that previously, when they were under Pharaoh's power, they were just units of production. Uh, They were living lives of arduous, constant toil, never a day off in Egypt. But now, at last, after hundreds of years, God has liberated them from Pharaoh in order to have relationship with him. And part of protecting their new freedom with God will be not slipping back into that same old seven-day workaholism, just becoming units of production once again. But instead, They're to to remember and celebrate the the Lord's rescue and they're to enjoy their relationship with him, taking a day out for him each week. So keeping the Sabbath is not simply about um, health reasons, you know, recharging so you can keep going. It's given to us to remind us week by week of much greater and more glorious realities. We hit that in point one, didn't we? It's, it's, to, it's given um, so that we can remember that um, we are created for a reason. Uh, God is holding out a, a final rest for humanity to enjoy. And we're to also remember our natural enslavement and our need for God to liberate us. 
And of course, the liberation from Egypt was a wonderful moment in the life of God's people, but it was only ever a little picture of a much greater liberation to come. Uh, Because now, and this is point three on your sheets, Jesus has come and he has won our new creation rest. So um, alongside um, Hebrews chapter four, uh, which we've already mentioned and we had in our reading, the other place in the New Testament which outlines how Jesus wins our new creation rest most clearly, uh, I would say, is in John's gospel. So we're just going to spend a little bit of time seeing this uh, developed in one place in the Bible, in John's Gospel. Um, John's Gospel, if you know it at all, is one of the accounts of Jesus' life, but it's very interested in the themes of creation and new creation. That's why it begins very famously, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then in ja- chapter 5 of John's Gospel, uh, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, on the seventh day of that creation week. And it gets Jesus into trouble with the religious leaders. And Jesus' defense is very provocative and very interesting. He says, chapter 5, 17, he's saying, The reason I work on the Sabbath is because my father is working until now, and therefore I am working. The background of this is, of course, the text we've already looked at, Genesis 2, 2, where God works for six days, and then on the seventh day he rests from his work of creation. And I think what Jesus is saying here in John 5 is this. Look, when humanity fell into sin, my father and I got up from our Sabbath rest after creation and we started working again. Not this time on creation, but on redemption, uh, on establishing a new creation, a new humanity. My father and I in the business of giving new life and judging the old world. And when we are finished, we will celebrate with a new Sabbath rest. So it's a massive claim. We often uh, major on the claim Jesus is making there about himself. It's a claim to deity. And everyone there recognizes this and they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. But it's also a, a massive claim about the work he has come to do. He's come to complete the work of redemption and to establish a new creation rest. And this teaching is then developed later as you work through the gospel because it's John alone of all the gospel writers who records how as Jesus is dying, he declares, it is finished. Chapter 19, verse 30. The work is done. Just as God's work of creation was finished back in Genesis 2, so now his work of redemption is complete at the moment when Jesus dies on the cross. And then in John chapter 20, we're given a whole load of hints that Jesus' resurrection in particular, that's his his tomb, empty, his resurrection is the beginning of a new creation. It's the beginning of a new world. And the other Gospels are full of references to Jesus rising on the third day, and that's counting inclusively from the day of crucifixion, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But John starts chapter 20 by telling us that it was the first day The first day of the week, the Sunday. And John wants us to see immediately that this is the beginning of something. It's a new week. And then when Mary sees Jesus alive again, she imagines him to be the gardener in verse 15, which reminds us of how uh, the first human being was a gardener. 
Uh, at the creation of human beings, the Bible tells us that God breathed into human nostrils the breath of life. And human beings became alive with God's life back in Genesis 2. And then on that first Easter day, the restoring life of God is breathed out, this time through Jesus. Chapter 20, 22. He breathed on them, making new people of the disciples and through them offering new life to the world. So John is showing us in this gospel that in the resurrection of Jesus, a new world has begun. He's announcing that this new creation rest is at last underway. Um, I grew up in in the countryside and uh, my dad um, wasn't a farmer but he used to like growing things in the garden and um, there was one day when um, the first plum was brought uh, into the house. It was a great day, there was lots of rejoicing uh, because even though it it was actually usually only one measly plum got brought in at the beginning Um, But we all knew what that meant. That meant that for the next few weeks, there was going to be literally bucket loads uh, coming in and we would be eating plum everything for weeks. And the Bible tells us that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. Uh, The Bible tells us that Jesus coming out of the grave is like that first plum. It's the declaration that the new world has begun. And so now we can know that the rest of God's people will be raised on the last day. We can know for sure because the first fruits has come in. And our future, our new creation rest is now secure. And therefore we can hope for it expectantly and joyfully. And so having put all these planks in place, we've thought about what the Bible says about rest and about how Jesus has secured our final eternal rest through his death and resurrection. We now at last, this is all a a very long intro, uh, we can now come to the question of whether and how this fourth commandment applies to us today. And I'm going to argue now, and this is uh, point four, that we are, as God's people, to keep the Lord's day as we wait for the final rest. Um, You'll notice there I've used the language of the Lord's Day rather than the Sabbath. And that's because in the New Testament, the particular day we observe has shifted from um, the Saturday uh, to the Sunday. And in the New Testament, the Sunday is generally called the Lord's Day after the resurrection. And the reason it has switched days is because Sunday, the first day of the week, is the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if we had time, I, I could show you that how, the, how the New Testament clearly makes that connection through a quirky little idiom that's only used for that first Easter Sunday and then for the church's gatherings on Sundays. So it's definitely the case that the reason we meet on the Lord's Day is precisely because uh, of Jesus' resurrection. And uh, we... Um, mark that. You, you may have been coming here Sunday by Sunday and, think, and thought, well, that's just what we do. But it's for a reason. Uh, week by week, we're gathering specifically on the first day of the week because we want to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And we try and find ways in our family, actually, to try and underline that point. I don't know what the legislation is like in your house, you know, you and your housemates, what, who, what the house laws are. But in our house, you can only have crunchy nut cornflakes on one day of the week. Very strict rule. 
Otherwise, it's, you know, Weedabix or Shreddies or those other cereals. And so on Sunday, the day comes around and it's, you know, there's great joy in the house. People scamper down and they say, or at least the younger children say, yay, Sunday cereal. And then I say, like a broken record, and why are we having Sunday cereal today, children? And one of them has to say, before they're allowed to eat it, because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, Daddy. It's just a little way for us to try and connect what is really happening. We are, we're celebrating every Sunday. We're gathering. We are making a big deal of today. Today is our, our celebration day, our resurrection celebration. Um, and I think the children are a bit perplexed why I forget this week by week, but it helps to drill it in. This is what Sunday is all about and should be all about for us as Christians. It's about celebrating that our Saviour has risen from the dead and our hope is secure. And as I said, in the New Testament, it is called the Lord's Day. Let's think about that for a moment. Um, We know it is, for example, uh, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's how it's spoken of. And even this description would have connected Sunday, in the minds of a, a Bible reader, back to the Old Testament Sabbath. Because the Old Testament Sabbath was called, in our reading in Exodus 20, a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Or elsewhere, um, God calls it my holy day, or the holy day of the Lord, in Isaiah 58. So the, the description, the Lord's day, would almost certainly make that connection in people's minds between the Old Testament Sabbath and the Lord's day that the New Testament people of God celebrate. Um, Now, it's understandable that the terminology changes, actually. If it didn't, people would get confused, wouldn't they, between the Saturday, which was already called Sabbath, and the Sunday, which you have to give a new name for. And especially in that crossover period, when lots of Jewish believers were celebrating both, it's natural that they used a different term for the Sunday. Now, as the Old Testament teaching comes through the prism of Christ into the New Testament... Um, you'll have thought about this in lots of occasions. When we read the Old Testament, we're always asking, what does this mean to us now that Christ has come? So the teaching comes, Christ is the prism, and we think, well, what happens to us the other side? Has it been changed? Has it been expanded, intensified? And that's a good question for us to be asking. And there are lots of changes to Old Testament practice as you come through Christ into the New Testament. Uh, For example, Jesus taught that after his resurrection, worship would no longer be centered in Jerusalem, which is good news. Uh, If you live in Greenwich, you can meet here. Um, He taught that the Old Testament dietary laws would no longer be binding. Jesus taught that the temple would be destroyed, and also that there was to be a new covenant meal, the Lord's Supper. Jesus established the authority of the apostles. Uh, And he established the worldwide mission of the church. Lots of changes that Jesus brought in. But it's striking that Jesus never, despite the countless opportunities that he had during his many clashes with the Pharisees about their Sabbath traditions, he never once hinted that the the Sabbath principle was about to be cancelled or abandoned. In fact, as we mentioned, he reaffirmed that the Sabbath was made for man, not just for Israel, but for humanity. And so I take it that we should really expect it to continue in some way. 
Uh, and it makes sense as well, I think, uh, theologically for it to continue. So think about this. If the meaning of the Old Testament Sabbath was, um, it was always there to point to, let's say, the forgiveness of sins, then you could make a very strong argument that once we have the reality, you know, once Jesus has, has died and risen, we are forgiven, then we wouldn't therefore need the sign anymore. We could leave the sign of the, the special day behind. It's a bit like, you know, we've got Christ's sacrifice, so we don't need the temple sacrifices anymore. But if the Sabbath day is all about pointing forward to the final new creation rest, that final goal of all creation, as we've been seeing, then of course it would make sense, wouldn't it, that the fourth commandment would continue, uh, even if it is on a different day. And it would continue right through until the Lord returns, until the final new creation rest is consummated and the, the whole earth is liberated. I do have to uh, point out that not all um, Bible-believing Christians would accept everything I've said. There's a difference of opinion. Many people um, would argue, people I would respect, um, that the Sabbath was just an Israelite thing, and therefore it's not to be observed any longer by New Testament Christians. And uh, just to try and give balance and to try and represent their views, um, there are three New Testament passages in particular which people take to be undermining of the principle of Sabbath observance. We don't have a lot of time to look at them, but let me give them to you if you're trying to weigh these things up. I think these are the key texts to, re- to wrestle with in the opposite direction. I put them on the sheets. Romans 14.5, Galatians 4.9-11, and especially Colossians 2.16-17, which mentions the word Sabbath specifically and in a negative way. We, as I say, we don't have time to, to look at every one of them. But if this is an issue for you, um, I'd encourage you to have a look at them. And for each of these passages, I would argue at least that none of them are undermining observance of the Lord's day. What they're doing rather is that they're undermining either legalism, so especially in the Galatian context, um, the verses are undermining the idea that observance of certain days could justify someone, and so that's why it's critical, or they're undermining the importance of observing the Jewish Sabbath, the, the Saturday, in addition to the Lord's Day. So that's why they're negative. Or um, they're undermining observance of annual feast days in the Jewish calendar, which are also called Sabbaths in the Old Testament. But however you understand these texts, I would argue that you need um, to come up with an explanation which doesn't end up writing off John the Apostle as a legalist or a Judaizer for calling one day in the week the Lord's Day in Revelation 1. So do grapple with them, um, but you want to try and uh, wrestle with these texts in a way that makes sense of the whole of Scripture. Uh, I totally accept um, this is an area where uh, we may not agree as Bible-believing Christians, and um, I understand that not everyone is going to come up with exactly the same conclusions as Andrew and I do on this. And so if that is you and um, you're feeling uncomfortable, um, can I urge you, as Romans 14 says, to be fully convinced in your own mind. So wherever you eventually land on this topic, uh, please don't just ignore it. Um, Please do the work yourself. Work through the texts. 
so that whatever conclusion you do come to, you're, you're doing it positively honouring God in this area, whatever conclusion you come to. Uh, but as we close, and for those who are convinced, I want to suggest some practical advice now on how I think we should be observing the Lord's Day as Christians. And I'll put there um, on your sheets two things. Number one, rest. Uh, and the second one is going to be um, remember. But let's first think about rest. And this is a call really to take Sundays off. Um, I guess some of us may be in a job where that is impossible. Uh, certainly in the first century, hardly anyone could take Sundays off because it was a, a novel idea. And uh, they would have the, um, Christians would have to meet after work uh, in that context. But as far as you, you have the choice, uh, why not work towards a situation where you can rest on Sundays whilst accepting that some people are still going to have to be um, firefighters or pastors or things like that. Uh, and yes, we're, we're going to come on to um, the benefits of using that day uh, for God, but actually, uh, and using it for remembering new creation, rest, our hope, and so on. Um, but I want us to, to get clear that primarily uh, the Lord's Day is about rest. Um, Exodus twenty three twelve says, For six days you shall do your work, But on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So the accent is on rest. It is to be a day of rest. That's what the Lord's Day is about. And uh, whilst that will mean not doing your day job and not doing heavy work at home, it doesn't necessarily mean inactivity. In fact, this isn't probably the most helpful slide for, for communicating that. It, it won't nec- you can have a snooze, but it won't necessarily mean a, a, an afternoon snooze, especially not at four o'clock. Um, in fact, God's holy days in the Old Testament were days of celebration. They were days of feasting, for example, in Nehemiah 8. And so it would be appropriate to do lots of fun things, refreshing things like meals and games and swimming and hiking and laughing. Those things would be great ways to mark Uh, the Lord's Day. So rest doesn't mean inactivity. And be aware that keeping the Lord's Day is going to require trust, and it's going to require preparation. So let me hit both of those. It will require trust because there will always be more work to be done. And so observing the Lord's Day involves declaring that that potential idol of work and career, that idol does not own me. And you can say weekly, Uh, in a very concrete way, that that is not the case by dropping your tools and saying, I trust the Lord. He's my protector. He's my provider. I will put down, I will be, what I would consider to be less productive this week. Well, let's see, and you'll find out the Lord's ways bring blessing. But it's a a practical way where you can say, I will trust the Lord in this and put down uh, my laptop or whatever it is. If you're a student in exam term, there will always be more revision that can be done, or more rehearsals. Uh, I want to um, mention that there are six days apart from the Lord's Day when you can do a lot of work, and th- therefore taking the Lord's Day off is a sign that you are trusting the Lord uh, and not yourself to get you through. So wherever possible, we need to be taking um, Sundays off. And secondly, it's going to require not just trust, it will require preparation. 
Um, there's a place in Exodus 16:23 where the Lord commands the Israelites to get ready for their Sabbath the next day. And so they collect double supplies the day before so that they can rest on the Sabbath. And in a similar way, we may need to be thinking ahead. We need to be preparing for Sunday. Uh, we'll probably need to, to make practical arrangements so that we can protect that day. Um, it might mean finishing our homework on Saturday or whenever it is. Uh, so that we can make the most of, of both resting and of fo- focusing on the Lord on the Lord's day. Um, don't arrive at church so wrecked that you can't encourage others or feed yourselves. Make preparation, count down to that day. And as we've seen, as well as being a day of rest, as Exodus 20 says, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It's a special day which belongs to the Lord, or as the New Testament calls it, the Lord's day. It's his day. So as well as being um, uh, resting, the final thing is that we need to be remembering. Remembering. Uh, so just as the Lord's Supper, it, Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the final banquet, and just as the, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our final inheritance, the Lord's day is a day for looking forward. Well, we remember all the things we've covered. Why we're here, that we're people who are made for rest. Uh, we remember and look back at the rescue Jesus has won for us at the cross and through the resurrection. But especially those things point us forward, don't they, to our hope and the final new creation rest ahead of us. And uh, obviously one of the best ways to do that is going to be church. It's no coincidence that um, Christians since earliest times have gathered on the Lord's day. This is a great day to focus on the Lord. Um, just practically, um, that's the picture for church. I didn't know what picture you thought of, but that was my one. Um, uh, practically, we've found that it can be hard to say to our children no if there's a party or if there's sport or something uh, on a Sunday afternoon. But it's a great thing, I think, for them to be learning as early as possible that church is a priority for us. Um, it's not something that's squeezed in if there's nothing better happening. And um, some of us need to learn that as adults, but why not model it um, for the young people as well? And hopefully we will find other ways, um, as well as church, um, of um, remembering and focusing on the Lord. Perhaps reading that Christian book that uh, you don't have time for in the week, or finding more time in the Bible, or in prayer, or in listening to MP3s, or whatever it is that would help you um, to remember on Sunday what you're about. Um, Sunday is God's great gift to us. It, it's God's great gift for our health, um, our physical health, our mental health, but especially for our spiritual health. That was why it was such a big deal um, for God's people in the Old Testament when it was ignored. It was a very stark statement that they didn't care about the Lord. Now, people often ask about exceptions. What about when so, something has to be done? And, you know, the nurse or the paramedic asks, what about the exception? And Jesus certainly taught that if your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you get it out. There was always the expectation that there will be um, things that need to be done in order to keep life on an even keel. But actually, it's very interesting in the New Testament, Jesus often chose to heal on the Sabbath, in instances where there clearly wasn't any emergency at all. And what Jesus was doing there, he was making the point which the people of his day had completely missed, that doing good on the Sabbath 
isn't some kind of exception, some kind of special pleading. Actually, doing good to people is precisely in line with what the Sabbath was always for. Even in our command in Exodus 20, the command was not simply to take rest, it was also to give rest, to make sure the servants, even the animals, were given rest on that day. And so Jesus was trying to show that finding ways to do people good on the Lord's Day, they're not exceptions that we have to feel awkward about, but doing good to people is part of the fulfillment of what the day was always for. And I think that's a a great topic for us to be discussing and thinking about uh, when we chat after the service. I do get that for some of us in this room, what I've been saying is completely brand new, um, and it's right that we take time to reflect on it, to look at the passages um, to think it through. I think one of the best ways to do that is in conversation. Um, we're going to have a Q&A, like always, um, afterwards. But especially, I'd encourage you to make the most of either the coffee questions on the sheet or just the, the chats after the service for, for getting these things, for working through the practicalities and thinking out what it means in our situations. So that increasingly, we can be a people who are faithful to what the Lord calls us to. And therefore, increasingly, we can be experiencing the Lord's blessing of being free people. Um, So many of us do go through life like crazy things. And uh, we're always saying, oh, why doesn't God give me some kind of a break? And it's ironic, because what if he has given us a break? Uh, The Lord's Day is this wonderful gift to us as his people. But of course, it's a gift we need to get out of the packet and which we need to start enjoying. I'm going to pause there. It would be great for us to have a moment's quiet uh, to come before the Lord. Um, And then we'll have uh, our prayers um, in a moment and then a chance for Q&A.